0: This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre.
1: We are very fortunate to have another international speaker join us today. Professor Jeremy Nicholson has flown from the UK. Um, Not an inconsiderable distance, in fact a jolly long one. I think the words were a bloody long one <laughs> a moment ago. He's only arrived yesterday so um, he's doing extremely well to be standing upright at this point. So Jeremy, um, Jeremy's title for his keynote this morning is Systems Medicine, Approaches to the Challenges of 21st Century Personalised Medicine and Public Healthcare. Now Jeremy is the, and the full um, bio of course is in your program notes, just, just briefly, he's the head of the Department of Surgery and Cancer and Director, MPC at uh, NIHR National Phenome Centre the, at the, uh, Center, the Faculty of Medicine at the National Imperial College London. Would you please make a very warm welcome to Professor Jeremy Nicholson.
2: Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Am I switched on? Can you hear me? Yes. You can. Good. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here, um, a long way from home. Um, And today I want to give you um, my views on a number of different subjects to do with personalised and public healthcare. Um, They tend to be treated very differently, scientifically, but in fact they're all about the same thing, which is understanding variation in human biology because your variation in your biology, whatever the sources, genomic or environmental, uh, determine your risks of getting a disease and they also determine how you should be treated optimally when you actually become a patient. So I want to talk about the problems that we face and trying to create translational technologies in a dynamic and changing world. Um, So we have to understand these gene environment interactions, how they are changing, how they impact us at the personal public health level. Uh, For that, we need enabling science technologies for measuring precision biology. Molecular phenotyping is one thing that I will talk about a lot, but uh, there are other things that play an important part as well. And also how we try and develop mathematical models of disease and health and try to employ those to optimally uh, manage patients and also populations. And then trying to make this work. I've been the head of one of the world's largest clinical departments now for nine years. I have 1,200 people over six campuses, which is an interesting management job, apart from anything else. Uh, But as a professional scientist, I'm actually a professor of chemistry uh, by uh, training. Uh, It's a very interesting challenge, educationally, and also operationally, to take new discoveries in the laboratory and push them through into the real clinical environment. And the most critical thing, whatever the technology is, is to enable clinical actionability. Right? So no matter what the technology is, no matter how clever it looks, if a doctor can't pick up a piece of paper or some computer and see what he needs to see pretty much immediately, it gets put in the can. Okay? So visualisation of data and complex models in an actionable format is really going to be critically important. Well, we all have aspirations to live long and healthy lives. And there's a concept that's been around for a number of years now called the 100-100, 100 years of life and 100 years of healthy life. The first part is not so difficult. Somebody born into a reasonably socioeconomically stable group in Australia today has a reasonable chance of living to 100 years. But those last 20 or 30 years are the critical ones because things start to go wrong then. So in order to live for 100 years and 100 years healthily, we have to have a much more precise understanding of our own human biology to prevent disease and to optimally treat it uh, when we do actually get disease. So that comes under the general heading of precision medicine, Uh, and precision medicine is just really about uh, taking biological knowledge about humans, whatever the metric is, and translating that into something that becomes actionable by the doctors. But it's not really just about the technology, it's about how you employ it and how you Translated into the clinic, and for that, there's lots and lots of stakeholders that also have to be involved. You have to have government, you have to have industry involved, pharmaceutical industry, the general biomedical community. You have to educate doctors to create uh, to be able to use technology. Uh, patient groups have to be involved, and of course, regulators have to be involved as well. And these are important parts of the translational process that are often overlooked during the early scientific developmental phase. And what we try and do, or have been trying to do at Imperial for a number of years, is think of it as a whole problem, the, whole, the gestalt, the system approach, not only what is the technology we need to solve this problem, but how are we going to make it work in the real economic environment of the national health system. Well, why do we need it? So uh, a lot of medicine at the moment is imprecise medicine um, and that's because we don't know enough about what we're doing. Um, so if you look at something like diabetes which is rocketing up around the world, if you look at all the different treatments, about 16 common interventions, Uh, metformin obviously is one of the most common ones in early stage diabetes or even pre-diabetes. But lots of other drugs can be used as well. But once those don't work, then it's almost a bit of a lottery what people choose next. And there is no rational use, no rational decision-making process that helps doctors decide on this at the moment. So what we have is diabetic roulette. And from you as a point of view of a patient, it's the doctor thinking, well, I've tried that before, now I'll try this one, let's see see what happens. We need to get away from that because you don't want three or four treatments. You want to find the right one and get it into that patient. It saves you money and saves them uh, a lot of misery. So when people think of patient stratification and precision medicine, usually the first thing they think of is genomics. And genomics is important and it's going to be important, but it is no, by no means the whole story. And it also is not as precise as people think. So I'm going to give you a weird example, which is the DEMA triplets, which are an American bunch of girls, I think they're about 35 or 36 now. Um, and um, they, if they're famous in America, so they appear on chat shows and things like that. Um, but one of the chat shows they appeared on, they decided to genotype them, right, using one of these common uh, publicly available uh, genotyping methods, and to work out their ancestry. Well, they come out as having different ancestry. So, so one's 11% French-German, one's 23 23 and the other's 18%. That's clearly wrong because they're identical triplets. They have to be the same. So what does this really mean? Well, the reason I'm mentioning it here is when we're doing precision medicine precision genomics, we need to have that third decimal price correct because we can make an action based on it. It doesn't matter whether you're 22% or 11% French or German. This is just something that Americans waste their time with, of course. But it illustrates the fact that genomics is an analytical technology. And all analytical technologies have precision and error in them. And we overlook the errors and the imprecision of a lot of genomic technologies. We take one gene screen and we think that's going to be the answer. It's not as simple as that. Furthermore, of course, our environment massively influences what happens to our bodies during our lifetime and how we interact with drugs as well. So the genome, uh, described by Francis Crick as the blue, blueprint for life, which is a nice way of putting it, but a blueprint in its own right tells you nothing okay about the object you're looking at. You have a blueprint from a nuclear power station which tells you as an engineer how to build it but it doesn't tell you about atoms or electricity or how the damn thing works and a genome doesn't tell you that its own right. It's a set of instructions for building an organism and when that goes wrong you get a disease. But depending on the environment you may or may not get a disease as well so it's a conditional probability of a gene To environment interaction and the environment consists of all the things that we interact with through our lives food drugs pollutants collectively now known as the exposome and that is a continuous stream of evolving events through life furthermore at every epithelial surface there are microbes the largest collection being in your in your gut but microbes are an interface between us and our environment and it turns out that they're critically important in the etiopathogenesis of many non-infectious diseases, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So collectively, the interaction of your genes, your environment, your diet, and your microbes gives rise to your phenome, which is the sum of all the measurable properties about your body, physical and chemical, that describe your precision biology. I think it's useful to think about things that kill us now and then uh, and how it's changed over the last uh, 100 years or so. So, previously, of course, in the 19th century, um, death was dominated by infectious diseases, TB, pneumonia, things like that. Now, with improved sanitation and antibiotics, um, then of course we live longer and we tend to die of diseases of old age. We get strokes, we get cardiovascular disease uh, as well. So, of course, one of the things that's going on, and this is well known to this conference, is that antimicrobial resistance is evolving. And if we don't fix that, we will go back to the 19th century, irrespective of what else we happen to be doing in medicine. Of course, pharma companies are not interested in this very much because um, they can't make much money out of antibiotics, right? But all the drugs they're developing for stroke and Alzheimer's will be irrelevant in 30 years unless they pull their finger out on that. Anyway, that's somebody else's problem. Um, the other thing that's happening is the world's changing in climate. Now, climate change is not just about sea level rising in New York. It's about all the physical, biological, and agronomic interactions that occur that are changing the world. Uh, And that's going to be massively important over the next 25 or 30 years. And already, we're beginning to feel this in terms of Parasites. So the WHO did a study, I think it was about 50 different parasites, where they've been monitoring them for several decades and they worked out that they're, they're moving out of the tropics at a rate between 5 and 50 kilometres a year. So within not too long, 20 to 30 years, a lot of temperate zones will have a lot of tropical diseases as well as all the ones that we're getting because of our bad lifestyle. Is that the worst problem? No, it's back to antibiotic uh, uh, abuse and AMR. Uh, this is from Dame Sally Davis, who's the Chief Medical Officer of England. Uh, antibiotic threat is worse than global warming. Um, I, I to, my office is in the Sir Alexander Fleming building uh, at Imperial, he was a, an Imperial College person. And in his Nobel lecture of 1946, he actually said antimicrobial resistance was coming. Exposing microbes to non-lethal quantities of the drug makes them resistant. So we've known this for a long time, done nothing about it. Um, Furthermore, because of these these, uh, increase in these plasmids, uh, things like MCR and NDM1, uh, which convey multiple antibiotic resistance, the same chime. Um, This is getting worse. I mean, the NDM1, I think, confers 14 different classes of, of antibiotic resistance in one go. An MCR uh, emerged just a couple of years ago, uh, which is, breaches the last group of antibiotics, the polymyxins. And at this very moment, these are combining to create bugs that can't be killed by any antibiotic at all. Let's just put that in a healthcare framework Um, In our hospital system in the UK, if you have a hospital-acquired infection, it in general increases the hospital stay by about 30%. That's a massive cost to the healthcare system, apart from the the problem of the, the, uh, from a financial point of view, apart from the medical problem. So the other thing is we're our own worst enemies. Uh, So Americans, you can watch them getting fat over uh, about 20 years here, where Americans managed to put on about 2 million tons of pure fat uh, without changing their genomics at all. So, well done there. Uh, and of course, that, that is to do with, with environment and their lifestyle and behavior, and that's all controllable. Uh, it's affecting the rest of the world as well. If you look at Wuhan, China, right? Uh, McDonald's and Starbucks, it looks just like a, a, a Western sort of city. And of course, diabetes, etc., are raging there. And you're gonna, if you do the, what we do, you end up in Die Fat Street, which is actually a really bad joke. <laughs> And that's also in Hong Kong that I thought I'd just put it in. But if we just have a look at this, this is from an Imperial College study uh, published about a year or so ago, looking at the driver of BMI into type 2 diabetes around the world. This big orange circle here is China. That's the, represent, the size of the circle represents the global burden of diabetes. Uh, this one's India, that's the United States, and this little, right, little one here is uh, is the UK. I think because the Australian population is really small, tiny, tiny dot on here. This is how it changed. Watch it go. Uh, as the BMI is increasing, there's a huge drive towards type 2 diabetes, but also watch there are different slopes. There are some things going off like skyrockets. So these are little islands in the Pacific, Tuvalu and uh, this, that and the other, uh, that you've never heard of, uh, but nonetheless have year on year changes in the pattern. So these are changing effectively in real time and they're gonna be massive problems for the future. So what's driving it? I mean, certainly diet and lack of exercise are, but there's other stuff going on as well. So a very interesting paper published a few years ago showed that kids that had antibiotics in the first years of life, particularly boys, are much more likely to be obese when they're teenagers. So there's a microbial component going on as well. I don't know what the line that boys and girls are different but nonetheless uh, there are quite significant differences for boys if they've had two or three infections in the first year of life that have been treated with antibiotics. Most other problems start in childhood. If you look at a snapshot of Britain, uh, 50% of our children don't exercise, 30% of children under the age of 16 get drunk once a week, which is a truly shocking statistic, and about 10% of 11 to 15 year olds smoke. And these Risky behaviours change the probabilities of getting all the things that kill us. Cancer, cardiovascular, stroke, the whole horror story uh, together. So no matter how clever we are our scientists and doctors, we cannot fight this on our own. This is a thing that is to do with public education, education of our children, education of the media in particular to educate politicians. And we need to have a new approach where scientists and medics are trying to drive the education process, but in a much more aggressive way than has been done uh, before. Microbes, I mentioned, I'll interface with the world. Um, I gave a lecture at the uh, uh, World Economic Forum a, a few years ago, and I don't like numbers, the economists. You have to give diagrams which are very simple to understand. So I tried to I put a diagram here that uh, this is the size of our genome in relation to the microbial genome that's within us. Um, there are about 10 million genes that are unique for every individual within the microbiome. Uh, your gut microbes are about 100 trillion microorganisms, about 10 times the number of cells in the body, more than the sum of the humans who have ever lived or will ever live, probably. Uh, and they're vital to regulation of our immune system and they're linked to lots of common diseases. So disorders of the microbiome, now known to be associated with a lot of immune-based diseases, uh, asthma, atopic diseases, arthritis, atherosclerosis, autism, bowel cancers, diabetes, it goes on and on. So there's a very complex network of interaction of our genomic variation and the microbial genomic variation and the interplay between those, which also determines risk factors for a variety of diseases. One of the primary exchange information exchange mechanisms is metabolism, so we have what we call Metabolome co-metabolome interaction. So our genome codes for a number of metabolic processes a Remarkably small number as a matter of fact in comparison with the number that go on in the body um, And then we also have the microbes which can make Biologically active pharmacologically active chemicals which are absorbed by us and those switch on, on and off various metabolic reactions We make molecules in our bodies pump them into the gut and we end up with combinatorial metabolism where there's more than one genome acting on metabolism to create extra complexity So it's almost infinite, the complexity that's possible. There are hundreds of thousands of known metabolites, and there's probably millions of possible metabolites when you look at combinatorial metabolism. If you go back to some very simple metabolism, colic acid up here, is uh, biosynthesized in the liver a gram a day or something like that. It's uh, glycine and, and, and taurine conjugated to make the, the effective emulsifying agents required for fat absorption in the gut. Um, but once it's been secreted, sorry, once it's been secreted into the bile, then lactobacilli and other bugs can deconjugate it to recreate colic acid, which can be then further metabolically altered, for instance, to produce deoxycholic acid, which requires more than one genome to make it. So that's very interesting and that can be reabsorbed and then further metabolized. But it turns out deoxycholic acid is a bad metabolite. So it's now been shown uh, that in obese individuals you get increased production of deoxycholic acid and that looks like it's a primary driver for bowel cancers and also probably liver cancer as well. So what your microbes do to your own metabolites is important in determining your disease risk factor. Furthermore, when it gets to the treatment stage, uh, by microbes are important as well. So this happened to be, there are, lo- there are hundreds and hundreds of examples, I haven't have a slide which was just from two examples published in Science in the same week, uh, where um, looking at um, solid tumors in the gut, the local microbial environment is changed by the presence of the tumor and that modulates the anti-cancer, if, the effectiveness of the anti-cancer drug. Uh, and also the general I- I immune effects Uh, of anti-cancer drugs such as cyclophosphamide are also modulated by variation in the microbiome. So the microbiome is important in disease risk and it's important in the the therapy as well and how how effective the therapy is. So what we have to think about is a really complex set of axes where there are microbial metabolites generated in the gut Um, From a a variety of sources, both human and dietary, and then they create a whole load of molecules, which are signalling molecules, which act on receptors around the body. So there's a bile acid nuclear receptor axis. There's an endocannabinoid axis. There's an aromatic phenolic axis. There's a short chain fatty acid axis. Goes on and on and on. So the microbes make loads of things that switch on off our pathways. We call it orchestral signalling, because it's like they're playing a tune that are through chemistry that are Receptors are listening to the question is what tune are they playing and and, you know who's conducting it and can we do anything about it? So rather than of course, this is a huge addition to complexity when you're trying to understand human biological variation But it gives us the opportunity for another set of different sort of interventions So we can think about microbiome specific drugs. So we might want to knock out certain uh, bugs with specific antibiotics. We might want to change the enzymatic activities of certain bugs so they make one substance and not another. We might also think of their products as being prodrugs or things we could modify to create new drugs. We can obviously use probiotics and brebiotics to potentially change gut biology. And if we really knew what we were doing, we could do synthetic biology and ecological engineering to build the microbiomes that were optimal for you. That is a long, long, long way from now. But if you think that is science fiction, well, it's not, because there are people that are already doing it. We suggested that you could do this about a decade ago now, uh, that the microbiome has such a big uh, set of uh, potential druggable targets that it might actually be much more effective to treat bugs rather than, rather than the host themselves. But it's been shown to be true. So there's a very nice example. It's actually now eight years old um, from an American group which were looking at the cancer a chemotherapeutic CPT11 which causes severe diarrhoea, it's a very nasty gut toxin, it's absorbed glucuronidated in the liver and then resecreted in the bile and the gut bugs deglucuronidate it creating the toxic substance again in the gut. So what they did is a QSAR type study, they looked at uh, drug receptor interactions and they designed some compounds which inhibited the bacterial glucuronidase and thus safen the drug. So you can safeen drugs by changing microbiological interactions as well. Right, let's talk about some science now. How do we get into the complexity? Um, and one of the things that I'm very keen on um, historically is, is metabolic phenotype because the metabolic phenotype or the metabotype is the result of gene and environment interactions. So your individual metabolic phenotype is the product of exactly the same things that makes you ill or changes the way that you react to drugs. And therefore, if we understand the metabolic phenotype, we have a window that's relevant to personalised and public health care. Well, people have been using body fluids for profiling for a long time. This comes from a book by Ulrich Pinder, in 1507, called Inevitabile Fatum, which means the inevitable fate, which is basically a catalogue of how to die horribly uh, and uh, and how little they could do about it. But in there, beautiful little diagram there called a urine wheel, it's got pots of piss with their different colours and tastes and smells, uh, and associated with that with diagnoses and also treatments. That is what we would call modern systems medicine, but without any, any knowledge of the biology or the chemistry that went into it. But that's what we do now, except we use advanced spectroscopy, right, and we don't have to taste urine that much anymore. So we can use NMR, which is a, a, a tool for probing magnetic properties of, of nuclei. Different types of protons from different chemicals in the body have different resonant frequencies, and we can measure thousands of these at the same time. There's lots and lots of different types of NMR spectroscopy, all of which give you different information. We also do mass spectrometry, which measures the exact mass of molecules. Often we separate them first with using some chromatographic tool. And there's lots of different sorts of mass spectrometry as well. So if you take a particular sample of blood or a urine or a biopsy, there are literally hundreds of combinations of different analytical technologies that you can use to profile them. All of them are incomplete, right? Not, there is no one technology that can. can measure all metabolites at the same time, and part of the reason for that is the dynamic range. So dynamic range is the the, the ratio of the lowest concentration to the highest concentration of metabolite, and that's something like 10 to the 14, and the best analytical technology we have in the world have got a dynamic range of about 10 to the 6. So I don't want to talk about the chemistry, I'll give you some examples in a minute of how it works, but you can deploy it in different ways. And In our National Phenome Centre, we're interested in population-level screening. So we've got lots of these tools, NMR and mass spec, parallelized, a bit like high-throughput genome sequencing, but we do high-throughput metabolic phenotyping. And here we're interested in metabolic profiles associated with disease risk. So is there a metabolic profile associated with future stroke risk or future cancer risk or whatever it is? And the same technologies can be applied in the clinic. Um, they can be if to develop new diagnostics or new prognostics. Um, here, the timescales of, of the analysis are very, very different. So when, if you're doing epidemiology, I mean, often epidemiology studies last decades, so you're not necessarily getting an, an, you know, an instant answer. But if you've got... In a clinic you need something that works on the clinical decision time making scale. There is no point in having any technology, it takes you three months to analyse if someone's in the hospital ward. It has to be within hours or a day at the maximum. So it creates new sites of challenge for the analytical chemistry. The way we have it working at Imperial is like a farmer. Discovery um, delivery pipeline. So what we have, if you like, in the discovery phase, we have all our different faculties developing new technologies, uh, new machinery, new chemistries. Um, they're, they're very funded by various organizations. And then a lot of our, in faculty of medicine, a lot of our scientists are also practicing doctors, so we're interested in how we take that technology and pushing it through and for that we've developed an Institute of Translational Medicine and Therapeutics and I chaired that for a couple of years. And that's where we put all our disruptive technology, genomics, and imaging and phenomics and biobanking, etc. And the Phenome Centre, which I'll describe to you in a moment, uh, contains those disruptive technologies. Now this is quite a big operation. So this is for one faculty of medicine the grant that we got for that was about $180 million Australian dollars over five years to do that in one university. So, you know, when President Obama says he was going to give $250 million for precision medicine in the USA a couple of years ago, you know, we saw that rah, rah, rah. You know, you need to be in the billions of dollars when you're at national level to make uh, an influence. Um, the National Phenome Centre, uh, I originally set up in 2012 after the uh, Olympic um, the Olympic Games in London, right? Because for every Olympic Games, there is a giant drug testing laboratory set up. And the laboratory for an Olympic Games costs something like 50 million Australian dollars, right, for the duration of the Games to, to set it up and make it all work. That's a huge amount of money. So I wrote to the, um, the uh, chief medical officer and I said, I've got an idea. For what we might do with it afterwards. And the government was desperate at the time of having sort of relevance to the society uh, of, of, of spending billions on the Olympic Games. So the Prime Minister found out about it, and three months later, we got 10 million pounds, uh, which is to move all the stuff to Imperial and set up a large scale phenotyping. Uh, laboratory after the uh, Olympics was over. So we do a whole sorts of different types of uh, assays, we do biofluid profiling, we do targeted metabolic assays and exploratory profiling. We do it at a very large scale, so we do hundreds of thousands of assays a year. And we have a complex array of assays with uh, profiling, where we're exploring the biochemistry, we don't necessarily know the answers, we're generating hypotheses, and, and, and we also have targeted assays, uh, where we already know something about the biochemical abnormality and we want to probe it further. And we handle multiple studies at the same time, uh, all of which we've got lots of metadata, so we've got whole genome sequencing, GWAS, patient information, all sorts of stuff in there. So there's a massive informatics crunch that is required at the end of this to bring it all together. It's also highly protocolised. We have 167 different protocols that we use that are all extremely rigorously controlled uh, to FDA-type standards. My p- people don't normally work as fast as that, by the way. <laughs> uh, uh, except when they're an acid, maybe. But um, at the end of it, we have more, That's the environment, one of the high throughput laboratories. Okay. It doesn't look like a a university laboratory and university laboratory and we've got dead rats and blood and stuff and pipette tips. Now, this is like a, a proper commercial laboratory in the way we've set it up. And, and one of the great things about being able to do things at very large scale is you can start to standardize stuff, which is one of the things that's obviously required for regulatory procedures. So we started this process more than a decade ago about what sort of things do you have to do? And it took to get to the National Phenome Center before we can actually start to really make it practical. And since then, We've been working with a number of groups around the world to develop an international phenome centre network. It is still in the process of being born. It was announced officially in late 2016. Uh, that's uh, Lord Darcy Sorry, that's Lord Darzy on the left, who was uh, previous Minister of Health, and he was also my predecessor as head of department at Imperial. And sitting next to him is Dame Sally Davis, Chief Medical Officer for, for the UK. And you'll be delighted to know that you now have an Australian National Phenome Centre, which is being built in Perth. Uh, which is a result of a collaboration between all the main universities in Perth uh, and also a number of the the funders there. Uh, And over the next year or so it will be built to a level that is close to the facility that we have at Imperial. And so this network around the world that we're building is built on the idea of very reliable, very high-throughput assays to the same protocols so that we have data interoperability. So we can suddenly start to scale up studies to a level that we've never been able to do before. So we're doing a study, for instance, in London at the moment on stratification of diabetes. We're going to do one in Singapore and one in Australia. And we'll power the studies more statistically, but we'll have different gene environment interactions in each of the populations. And so we'll be able to do uh, study the deep biology without the analytical chemistry getting in the way. And the aim is to go for the world's most difficult and top problems. Antimicrobial resistance, global warming, health interactions, healthy ageing and dimensions. Autism, which is a really interesting one, that's one of the world's most expensive diseases. It costs £32 billion a year in the UK because it's a lifelong disease. It's not just little Timmy needs help when he's young, he needs help through all, all his life. The total amount of money spent on autism in the UK from the research councils last year was £4 million for a £32 billion a year problem. We need to do a lot of educating our politicians. Anyway, so ultimately the aim is to produce global atlases of metabolic disease, which we can all use and all dig into, and also study gene environment interactions and how that affects the expression of disease around the world. So when we get a large scale of population phenotyping, uh, we introduced the idea of the Metabolome-Wide Association study about t- 10 years ago now. Uh, and this is basically like, basically like a GWAS type of study, a genome-wide association study, but it uses metabolic profiles instead of genomic profiles. And so you interrogate the metabolic profile and you look at metadata, and often outcome data from years uh, ahead in epidemiological studies, to generate hypotheses that correct metabolic variation uh, to risk and risk outcome. Here's an example with uh, obesity, which we published a couple of years ago. Um, the political connect, connect correct for that now, is adiposity for some reason, but it means, basically means you're fat, okay? Um, and so we looked at this in, in Americans and also in British people, and this is just the NMR selection of metabolites that come out as top of the list of predicting health Actually, how fat you are. Now, we're not interested in using complex machinery to predict how fat you are directly, but we're interested to know how that relates to the biology behind it. So if you look at the very, the very top variables, I don't, it doesn't matter what they are very much, but they're incredibly statistically significant, 10 to the minus 10, 30, 40, and things like that. The ones in red are gut microbial in origin. And if you sum the variance explained in the general population, this is an American population, by the microbial metabolites, it comes to about 8% of the variance. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you look at the GWAS explained variance for a much bigger study, 250,000 people, all the 32 statistically significant GWAS genes only explain 1.45% of the variance. So the microbes are four times, their microbial variation is four times plus more important than genomic variation for explaining obesity in the general population that's not surprising in some ways because the microbes are the first genomes that your food eats you know the food your food meets as it comes in um so that's a very boring diagram we're trying to get it into a top journal a science journal or a nature journal and one of the things about science and nature is figure one is always really good and people the referees are oh, that's great well it must be brilliant stuff so i asked one of my uh, PhD students to write me a piece of software to produce a good diagram of a boring table. Uh, And what you end up with is something called networks, and this is a multivariate uh, analysis of all 6,750 metabolites in the KEGG pathway, with all their scalar connectivities between every possible metabolite, with every linkage being a single enzymatic conversion. And the algorithm takes all the variables, the things that are positively associated or negatively associated with obesity, and it plugs them together and reconstructs a virtual network that explains all of the connectivities between the biomarkers. So red things here, things in the red squares, are positively associated with obesity, and the blue are negative. Um, and then on top of it, we ontologically map them. So we put a color behind it which says where in the body that's going on. Right, so at the, top, at the top of the page, we've got muscle, branch chain, amino acid metabolism, which turns out to be hugely important. And we can also concatenate that with microbial genomics, so we can see the microbial metabolism working in the human metabolic space. So this is a symbiotic metabolism diagram, uh, and it's the first time that anything like that has been done. So we can generally now look at how our microbes work with our bodies in different pathways and different compartments to change biomarkers that are associated with obesity or indeed any other disease for that matter. We also have loads of dietary data on these people, so we can look at the dietary input data, this is 24, at previous 24 hours, um, and also the relationship, the, the relationship between the biomarkers. So when you've got a red cross-correlation, it means that particular dietary variable is strongly associated with a particular input variable. And what's really interesting about this, I'm not going to go into the detail here, Uh, we have special software for doing that, is it allows molecular epidemiologists to go into a much deeper level. You know, normally say red meat's bad for you, fruit's good for you, and things like that. But we now have all the very detailed components of the diet at the molecular level, which we can now say which part of which diet was really important uh, in connecting these these biomarkers up. So we've we've taken a a new step forward in understanding uh, of, of nutritional epidemiology. We can also do interventional studies, so if you look at African-Americans, um, they have about 40 times more colorectal cancer than Africans, uh, although they have you know, pretty similar genetic background. Um, so obviously there is a possible dietary connection. So uh, we're working with Steve O'Keefe in Pittsburgh uh, we took a group of uh, African-Americans and we put them on African diets for two weeks and we took a bunch of Americans, sorry, a- a- of Americans and we put them on, sorry, we put Americans on African diets and Africans on American diets. The Africans on American diets really loved it, uh, the, <laughs> the burgers and chips for two weeks, they couldn't get enough of it and that's the problem. Uh, and the Americans really didn't like the porridge and fruit that they got. <laughs> but. When we looked at the systems analysis, we found that their microbiomes structurally inverted from an ecological point of view, and their metabolism inverted as well. So Africans became Americans, and Americans became Africans in two weeks phenotypically. That is truly extraordinary. Okay, we also biopsied all these unhappy people, um, and we were able to look at their cancer uh, risk markers, things like CD3 cells, and they inverted as well. So that's a really remarkable story about how, di- how you can, you know, with a, in a, just a couple of weeks, change your diet to change uh, your life. We can be more subtle than that. Those are quite big dietary changes. People often talk about what's a healthy diet, what's not a healthy diet. As I said, eat, eat less red meat. Know, eat, eat more light, white meat, etc. But we really wanted to know whether this was, was true or not because people are so variable. Why should there be one common healthy, good diet for people or good set of dietary recommendations? So we, we took a group of people and, and put them in metabolism cages for two weeks where they were very strictly controlled, and we set them up with different diets and cycled them through the diets. Um, and so we had what we call had a sort of four different scale of healthy diet. Um, and what we found is those people move through metabolic space according to which doubt they're on. So, for instance, over here, uh, they're, in, they're on an unhealthy diet, um, and then over here, they're in, with a healthy diet. So you can move them physiologically. And if we deconvolve some of the spectral data, we can take specific biomarkers which are related to unhealthy or healthy diets. Ramnitol, for instance, that comes from... Uh, apples, uh, methyl histidine, high in in white meats and things like that Uh, and also other more general metabolites like glucose and also uh, 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 microbial metabolites like glycine and hippurate. And you can look for trends in these things and a lot of people have similar trends but notice the variability. These are people under really strict metabolic control and there are some people go up and some people go down for the same thing. But what you can do with this and other data in there is build multivariate models that describe through time metabolic behaviour in relation to diet or any other uh, part of your life. So this is two women who are related. This is mum and this is daughter Uh, and mother is mainly a vegetarian. Um, and she is very health conscious. She could even be an Australian, um, and she looks pretty fit. <laughs> um, and uh, this is her daughter. And what we can do is through multivariate scoring, we can create like a hundred percent urinary metabolite profile uh, scoring system. So we can say that if you've got certain metabolites, we can score you at hundred percent healthy, right? And this is mum, right? She's pretty healthy most of the time. And here's daughter. And then you can see. Sorry, when she's had chocolate and wine, you know, the following day she's not so well. And then when she has red wheat and meat and wine, she's also uh, not so well. So this is, for the first time, real interventional monitoring that can be done with a dipstick test that effectively costs about $10, something like that. Okay. Uh, We can also do all the biochemistry on the same data. So I'm not gonna even begin to go through this, but we can now start to look at not only the bulk behavior in relation uh, to uh, different dietary interventions uh, for all of the people, but we can even individualize them, have individualized metabolic network diagrams, which uh, are based on the same basic model, but show the different emphasis of different metabolite shifts for different people under exactly the same dietary intervention. So the message is not all healthy diets are good for all people, Everybody has their own preferred diet and their own best diet, and we have to try and find out what that is. And this is where we start to think about precision prevention and precision preventive medicine in the future. Final part of my talk is about clinical phenomics. I've talked about the population stuff and some of the the, uh, epidemiological stuff. Now let's try and put the technology in the clinic Uh, And here we're talking about what we call patient journey phenotyping, so following a patient metabolically or physiologically through a journey and see how they respond uh, under therapeutic load, and we can use body fluids, the common diagnostic ones like blood or urine or whatever. We can also do t- tissue biopsies and analyse those. These are a bit rarer, uh, but we can also do fancy imaging technologies when we have biopsies too. And I'll, I'll, I'm just going to show you the, the range of things we do in our clinical phenome centre. It uses exactly the same technology as the national uh, phenome centre for population screening. So. A patient journey has various stages to it. There's a first, a diagnostic phase. The patient's in the hospital, Doctors have a look at them, poke them around, take some blood, do ultrasound, whatever it is they need to do, and then make a a decision what's wrong with them. Uh, And then there is an interventional phase, and then there is an outcome phase. So what we have done is put NMR and mass spectrometry at every phase of the patient journey for certain patient types of patient journey. So in addition to all the other stuff that's been done in chemical pathology in ultrasound and whatever, uh, we've also got a very deep metabolic phenotype that's associated uh, with a patient. And this turns out to be scalable and translatable for any sort of disease. So we have at any one time, studies on cancer, cardiovascular neuroendocrine, rare diseases, um, sepsis, critical care, and liver transplantation. And I'll just give you, because of the time, I'll just give you one example, which I think is quite a nice one, of comparing with what a modern technology can do with what is an established gold standard. Uh, And for that, choose um, decompensated cirrhosis. This is acute on chronic liver failure. Uh, And basically, if you get this, you are going to die. You are going to need a liver transplant. Okay and the question that hepatologists have been grappling with for some time is if you've got a bunch of patients who all need liver transplants who's going to die first because you might have less livers than there are patients and we have an opt-in system in the UK Uh, and there's never enough livers uh, to go around. So what they normally use is the model for interchange liver disease, the MELD uh, score, and we want to compare that and other scores with what we could do with advanced spectroscopy. So we had 80 patients in a training set, test set of 101, a bunch of controls and some stable cirrhosis patients. We had NMR and mass spec on everybody, we biopsied them all, and we we knew what the outcomes were uh, in terms of death this is a retrospective prospective study, um, in 90 days days survivorship in our particular study. And cutting a long story short, this is the MELD score up here. Air under the curve is about 0.87, sensitivity about, uh, sorry, specificity about 87%, specificity 79% for predicting mortality, whereas by NMR spectroscopy it's 0.96, 98 and 79, and mass spectrometry, depending on how you do it, is 100% and 85%. If you put NMR and mass spec together it's 100-100. The important thing is that these are single tests, uh, the meld uses a triple test, takes a couple of days, costs about $180, and for a fraction of the price, the, you can do the NMR, and it takes 10 minutes if you've got a handy NMR spectrometer to pop it in and, and run the sample. Um, so here is a situation where the new technologies outperform the gold standard significantly, and are also quicker and less costly. So what's not to like about that? And we have many other examples where this is the case. So now, of course, we're going into clinical trials uh, to look at this to see if it could really work operationally in in the real clinical environment. So plasma metabotyping, this is all based on on blood plasma, accurately predicts mortality. we can do real time diagnostics as well if you want to get really fancy. So, this is Zoltan Takats, the inventor of the eye knife, which some of you may have heard. Now, in surgery, what you do is use a diathermy knife. Um, well, there's a number of different devices, but they all sort of generate heat and smoke. Uh, so, in, you're passing an electric current through the tissue, it's cutting and cauterizing at the same time, and the smoke is normally aspirated away, because surgeons don't like smoke in their face, so there is normally some sort of pump. Um, But the smoke is a supramolecular cluster of charged and uncharged species, which we can analyze in a mass spectrometer in real time. So here is a mass spectrometer, um, and it has a Venturi pump, and the surgeon can be six meters away from the mass spec, and the smoke gets pumped into the mass spectrometer, um, and then it's sampled, Um, and we don't really like these supramolecular clusters. It's like oily barbecue smoke is what it is, and the spectrometers really hate it. They get all gummed up. So we collide the smoke with a superheated iridium surface, which smashes the supramolecular clusters apart, creates new ionization, uh, which is good for mass-spec detection. And then it goes to a time-of-flight machine. This is an ion separator for charged and uncharged species. And in, a, in a, a time-of-flight machine, it's a mass-to-charge ratio that's measured. You accelerate the ions in a magnetic field, and the heavier ones are slower, right? So it by, by the time it takes to go through the system, it actually determines the exact molecular weight at seven decimal places. And then what is happening here, oops, sorry, what, is, what was happening there, I'm not gonna go through that again, was that the um, mass spectrometer and the computer attached to it was comparing the smoke chemistry in real time with 300,000 histopathologically annotated smoke samples and giving diagnosis, cancer, not cancer, about that sort of rate and the real advantage of this is when you've t- t- knocked out a tumour you can run around the excision margin to check there's no tumour left chemically and we, we're in clinical trials for breast cancer uh, now in three different units in, in, in London so that's very exciting. It also works in all solid tumours. All the top 20 solid tumours give nearly 100% sensitivity and specificity for the diagnosis. If you excise a tumour and stick the knife in it, it tells you whether it's a primary or a secondary, based on the chemistry, and even where the primary was. That smoke carries the memory of where the tumour came from, which is truly extraordinary. Um, We've also adapted this for uh, um, endoscopy, the eye endoscope. Um, This basically involves putting a an electric snare onto the endoscope. So you snare a tiny bit of tissue uh, down to 20, perhaps less than 20 micrograms, and basically burn it and suck it into the mass spectrometer. Uh, And it works brilliantly well for, not only for for cancers, you can detect a cancer and its type, 10 centimetres away from the tumour itself. You don't have to biopsy the cancer. You can take the the actual normal looking tissue, uh, which is characteristic abnormal because of the field effect of the cancer biochemistry, which is also uh, remarkable. Uh, we've got, we're not in clinical trials on this yet. We're still developing the technology. It does involve having a 3000 volt uh, device put up your ass uh, and uh, <laughs> we need to make it sure it's quite safe, right? We've had a few heroic volunteers that have done this. We also want to make pathologists redundant if at all possible. Um, they're very slow and expensive. So we've developed some new systems for scanning tissues with scanning mass spectrometry. So you take a tissue biopsy, you section it. Frozen sections are ideal, but it will work with, with paraffin embedded sections. Um, and what you basically do is you raster an analytical beam across the surface, or more precisely, you, the analytical beam comes out, and you move the tissue underneath it. And it creates tiny little puddles, maybe 10 to 20 microns across, of solvent. And molecules dissolve into that, and they volatilize and are sucked into the mass spectrometer at an atmospheric inlet. Uh, to the mass spec. And this shows you a piece of software that shows you a mass spec image. On the right, that is a, a mass spec image of a, a colorectal biopsy. It looks a bit boring, but I'll make it more interesting in a minute. And this is non-destructive technology. So you can take that piece of tissue and you can do the hem- and eosin uh, staining on it. Uh, and which is shown on the left. But you always get a bit of tissue distortion when you do that. So what we do is some mathematics, which takes the distorted tissue and realigns it perfectly uh, with the mass spec image. And then we can, the histopathologist can say, well, that's a bit of an adenocarcinoma. Uh, This is a bit of muscle. Um, And the next bit is, uh, I think, a bit of normal mucosa. And so you can select out from the normal image and you can select all of the different bits of the mass spectral profile. So every one of these little pixels on the right-hand side is a little dot of chemistry which contains about two and a half thousand metabolites that have been measured by the mass spec. And then you can build a statistical model that separates different tissue types. Uh, the red things here are cancer biomarkers in the mass spec profile. You can do the univariate statistics on that. We can do something called the total correlation spectrum of that which finds all of the biomarkers for the cancer in one go. Um, and then we can do another thing which is say, right, okay, we built that model um, on this tiny uh, bit of the tissue, right, this, which we've selected out. Can we now find out where the, re- can we project that piece of abnormality into the rest of the tissue? Um, and the answer is that we can. Here's the tumor, there's the muscle, and there's the mucosa, and there's a the composite image. That means, you can now read histopathology using a computer, which is looking at chemistry rather than uh, the optics and the staining that normally pathologists use. But if it were just tumour versus normal, that wouldn't be very interesting. Um, But genetic variation in tumours, tumour heterogeneity has an impact on the metabolic profile. So this is some work we published recently, shows you can tell the difference between HER positive and HER negative tumours by the chemistry of the tissue. You don't have to do the genomics at all because that's encoded within the metabolic profile. If you go to a liver biopsy, uh, here's the liver biopsy, here the H and E at the top. Um, this below it is the single section mass spectrometric profile color coded according to the sub phenotype of the tumor. And that relates to the chemical classification over here, all the different chemical subclasses based on the, the metabolic profile. Each one of those dots is a single pixel, if you like, of the image which has a an actual topographical locator, so we can create the chemical abnormality uh, with the topographical image. And we can go into much more detail of chemistry of tumours than it's ever been possible before. And to really emphasise this, this is a, a liver biopsy where we have 51 sequential slices, which we've imaged by mass spectrometry, and that is showing the distribution of the heterogeneous phenotypes within the cancer Uh, And this shows the distribution of a cancer biomarker in the tumour and some normal tissue that's adjacent to it. So we can image um, in three dimensions, not only by individual biomarkers, but actually by whole biochemical pathways uh, as well. So that's extraordinary that that you can do this. I also want to talk about the information that's in here. So there's 290,000 mass spectra, each one of which was measuring 2,500 metabolites. So this image is based on 725 million pieces of metabolic data. And the resolution of heterogeneity that one can get with this technology is a 1,000 times better than it's possible with genomics. Okay, so genomics cannot even come close to what you can do with metabolic uh, phenotype. And we can even go to particular parts of tissue Isolate the uh, spectral profiles, a particular volume and calculate the metabolic network for it as well using the same sorts of methods we used before. So finishing off now, the whole of uh, the uh, clinic now is a mega variant information universe. Um, And we need to slice the data in different ways. So we can think about clinical decision making engines, clinical training engines, undergraduate training engines and also even involving patients as well and also for public display like we're doing now. And so we're thinking about now new visualization modalities to help clinical actionability. So we've engaged with a lot of technologies here for displaying data. This is an example of what we call eye-wall technologies. This is a mock-up, but I'll show you the real thing in a moment, uh, where you have multiple people and you can have telemetric controls. So it's like gaming, you know, where you do those dance games with videos and things like that. You can, sp- you can move data around. Every one of those thumbnails would be a piece of information. Genomic information, metabolic, or whatever it is. And we can have people that interact with such data uh, in real time. Uh, and there is an eye ward uh, at Imperial College. And there are also other technologies like eye domes. This is one at the University of New South Wales, a floating eye dome, which has got a connectome diagram in it, right? Um, you can put all sorts of things on these things. Normally, these connectome diagrams are about this big when you put the in a journal, you can't read them at all. But here, you can actually get involved in it and get inside it. Uh, this is a, an iDome uh, immersion technology. This is also invented in Australia by uh, 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 a group of Australians, including Sarah Kendronine, who was at the University of New South Wales. And this is a hemispherical uh, projection facility which allows you to explore all sorts of data. When you're standing in it, it's like being in the IMAX theatre. Uh, this is Professor Toc- Takats here looking at the 3D uh, ultrastructure of a uh, Oh, that's me trying to pretend I know something. The 3D ultrastructure of a cell. You can grab hold of a joystick and you can fly through this. You can fly. Th- you can do drug protein dropping and things like that. We're using this all sorts of amazing things to get a handle on complex data. We've also, could you dim the lights a bit, please? Uh, used exactly the same technology uh, for patient involvement. So in the middle, sorry, it's it's very dark, but that's because it's in a blacked-out room. Uh, there's a patient and the surgeon on the left is showing her a PET scan, an immersive reality PET scan of her own tumour. And they can use this data to plan the optimal operational angles and things like that, uh, and then also to explain to the patient what they're going to do. There's the tumour emerging from the, the tissue space. So This is truly uh, extraordinary stuff. Um, the most advanced facility in the world is in Australia, the University of New South Wales, a CAVE3 system. Uh, which has got 56 4K resolution military standard uh, 3D screens um, all surrounding you. So it's called cylindrical immersive reality. Uh, On the right hand side there is one of my postdocs who wrote a load of uh, metabolic software for that system, uh, including 3D interactive uh, networks You can't really get the impression of this but the networks are all around you when you've got the 3D glasses on and they're so persuasive this woman actually ducks out of the way as one of the metabolites comes past her. So you can, uh, you can actually click on the metabolites to show you what they are, you can click on the lines there, the enzymes, and you can start to be involved in 3D biochemistry in an extraordinary way. We also want to make this work for clinicians, so this is the eye wall, this is me talking, I don't know if it will run, uh, yeah, it's showing a load of clinical data and omics data together with, in this case, a load of colorectal uh, uh, physicians uh, talking about individual patients and their data. I'll show you, a di- I'll show you a, 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 a what they were actually. Oh, oh Christ, it bombed out. <coughs> Sorry, just a minute. <laughs> Not optimized for this. I knew this was gonna happen, um, so let's try again. My computer was working brilliantly until last night, of course. Um, And I think I've just given it too much of a dose of information. I don't want to download that font either. Thank you for asking, though. Uh, Here we go. I'll just finish off. Here we go. So, anyway, the point is the point I was going to make uh, is that you can take all the sorts of omics data that I've been talking about. Um, And you can start to put it uh, in together in a a multivariate display that allows doctors not only to interrogate their own patient data, as they do in in multidisciplinary group meetings, but also to look at the new types of data that are possible uh, with our technology. Ultimately, we want something like this, a handheld device that can access the supercomputer uh, machinery. Um, And this is still aspiration. We haven't got that yet. But we are making some progress Um, This is an example of the mass spectrometric tissue imaging um, on a mobile phone Uh, and so you can do that sort of stuff, you can do this on an iPad as well, this happens to be on a Samsung so it's probably going to burst into flames any second Um, and uh, we can also do some amazing stuff using HoloLens technology. Uh, which is visualisation within the operating theatre. So this is a tissue biopsy that's been imaged by mass spectrometry. This shows, uh, shows uh, cancer heterogeneity. And you can see this The blue line is the surgeon's line of sight that anybody who's wearing the glasses can see. Uh, and they can actually go up to uh, the image and start to interact with it. You can see him try and grab hold of a piece of tumour. Uh, I don't know what it would do with it. But the point is, you can actually take the data that we've got from chemical, our new, type, uh, new types of chemical pathology, and the surgeons can look at it and try and understand it. The same technology can be used for projecting. MRI or uh, uh, other sorts of imaging data, PET imaging data, directly into patients. So this is HoloLens technology. This is a patient's leg. This is for vascular surgery. This is another group of my surgeons here. And so you can see exactly where you are going to cut them up uh, with some considerable precision and also uh, in three dimensions as well. So I think that's enough. Uh, Just to bring us back to the beginning, um, the 100-100 concept, 100 years of healthy and happy life, But can we do personalised health care for all? And the answer has got to be no. There are seven billion people on the planet. There is a big increasing gap between developing and developed world. So I don't really want scientists and medics to be developing technologies just for rich people. That's not what we're here for. The whole world needs our our sorts of development. So we've been trying to do some outreach. And we've been using our high-end technology uh, to try and create biomarkers that are relevant to um, developing world populations such as Africans so we looked at a lot of hepatocellular carcinoma uh, data from that we generated metabolically in the UK and in the MRC unit in the Gambia they also had one mass spectrometer incapable of doing all the analytical development work but they were capable of looking for the same sort of biomarkers that we've discovered and we're able to validate some of the discovery that we've done in London in West African populations in a West African country. So I think the, my final comp- Conclusion is: we have a lot of problems, right, facing us as, as humans and as doctors and scientists. Um those problems are not insuperable but they are very very difficult. No one group, no one university, no one country is capable of solving all these problems. We need to work together and that's my message to you all, is we all need to work together in things like the International Phenome Center Network, share data and for God's sake educate politicians to give us more money otherwise we are going to have a very bad future indeed. So on that note, uh, Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for all our collaborators and all our people who give me money and I'm very happy to take any questions.
1: Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Jeremy. My goodness me, we've gone a little over time, but I was, Sorry like everyone call. here, utterly, utterly engrossed. Uh, as a, a patient, that 3D imagery, I think, would be overwhelming staring at one's own tumour and I think I'd be swatting it away. Um, That was just extraordinary. Look, we, I'll I'll take a couple of questions. We are going to have a a bit of time for questions afterwards. If you have a question, line up now quickly. I just want to ask you, go back to the the point you just made then, which is a a critically important one, about collaboration. Mm -hmm. We're facing enormous challenges and we must collaborate and work together and no one organisation, no one centre can fix all these problems. And then you mentioned political will early on in your talk you talked about the need for public education mm-hmm. media education as well how how difficult is that proving at the moment and particularly getting political understanding that goes beyond the short-term political agenda
2: yeah well I think we're all aware of this very acutely and we've known about it for a long time um, we've been very in- ineffective as as, as, as you know, pressure groups for, for changing that I think possibly because I'm not sure about doctors, medical doctors, but scientists tend to be very private people and they think they work on their own thing. And If somebody doesn't understand it, you know, I'll sod them, actually. I mean, that's really true. There's a lot of people mm. that actually think like that. Um, so I think we have our, to look into ourselves and educate our own young people first to, to be media savvy mm. and to be, mm. uh, be you know, outgoing. And we really, and at Imperial, we are trying very hard to do that. We have school visits, people come in, we go out mm. to schools and stuff like that. But it's a long whole journey. The shortest haul, somehow, I think, is educate the media, because they have, if you can get them on side, they have immediate reach to millions and millions mm. of people. But
1: as a journalist, I would say to do that, there needs to be a greater sense of um, relationship building, obviously, and communication, yeah. but also a way of communicating what is very complex material mm-hmm. into a very digestible way.
2: Absolutely that, so. That gives well, stories. the data visualisation helps you with that Indeed. too. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure about in in Australia, but in the UK, scientists are deeply hated. You know, we we (laughs) created atomic weapons pollution. We have Frankenstein food genetically modified things. We're associated with all the problems, but it's scientists that are going to come up with all the solutions.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I'll just say, though, as a journalist, the the flip side of that is it is very difficult to get academics and scientists uh, to communicate, to actually agree even to be involved in media, but that's a whole other story. Look, we will take one uh, question here. And if you could keep it brief, please.
0: It will be brief. I asked this, i uh, Paul Neeskin's GP, Harvey Bay, which is a lovely place just west of Fraser Island. Um, I, I've been a GP for 30 years and in the business of looking after patients and therefore very much so interested in their real outcomes and mm-hmm. the real world. I asked this question yesterday of the genomics man. Uh, is there some future for this technology to help me better stratify people with their risk factors? We spend lots of money uh, on uh, you know, blood pressure treatment, cholesterol treatment, et cetera. Uh, and many of those people, of course, will never have had their, uh, their particular index disease we're trying to prevent actually occur. So one of the themes we've been talking about, of course, is overdiagnosis, diagnosis over-treatment. So my question is, will um, your metabolic profiling hope help us uh, reduce or increase the number of people we end up putting on pills forever?
2: Right, okay, so it's a very good question, very important question. So my view is if we get it right, it will massively increase the efficiency of medical management. Um, And the reason for that is not because of the technology I've just showed you, but because of the discoveries that it makes. So the technology we have is, very very expensive and it requires big units right in you know major research centers you're never going to have an NMR spectrometer in your office so you don't want one this bloody great big thing filled with liquid nitrogen right but the important thing is out of the thousands and thousands and thousands of things we measure we can distill it down to a very small number of variables which can need to be measured and once you know what those are you can put them on a dipstick technology or a lab on a chip and that could come down to a few dollars and could be something that could be you put in their urine or their plasma in your, in your uh, GP room and get an answer out. It might not be the definitive answer, it might be far enough to point them, saying you, it's, you're this sort of patient not that sort of patient, or you need a further diagnostic test, possibly in, in, in the hospital. So I think the difference between our approach and genomics, I'm not trying to slag genomics off at all, it's really very important and powerful, is it's, it's difficult to ever think of GP-based genomics in our current technology, right? that you could have GP-based metabolic profiling based on the outcome outputs of our technology. How long? How long? <laughs> the, well, um, You're after that crystal ball again, aren't you? I know. <laughs> with the right sort of te- backing, it could be as little as five years for some sorts of tests. Right? really quite... I mean, we have quite an aggressive uh, attitude to this because we think for certain diseases, there are, there are things that you can do very, very quickly. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of... Um, inertia in the medical community, which is another barrier to translation. I mean, in the UK, one well, of the biggest barriers to translation, certainly in London, is private practice, right, because people earn a lot of money in Harley Street, and what they don't want is a new text that comes along that takes their <laughs> patients away, and I'm not just joking about that. It's mm. a real issue. Mm.
1: Okay. okay. ladies and gentlemen, would you please give a very warm welcome to Professor Jeremy Nicholson. <laughs> 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 <laughs>